You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 86 of a Life in Ruins podcast, where we investigate the careers of those living a life in ruins. I'm your host, Carlton Gover, and I am joined by my co-host, Connor Johnnan. David stubbed his big toes and all of his accomplishments and will not be with us today. Hashtag cancel strider. Today, we are joined by Dr. Heather Rockwell, who is an assistant professor of cultural and historic preservation in the Cultural, Environmental, and Global Studies Department at Salve Regina University. Dr. Rockwell, it is a pleasure having you on with us tonight. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on, you guys. Yeah, of course. As as we've had this happen a couple times this past couple months and, and frequently, we have folks coming from um, the University of Wyoming and Dr. Rockwell is one of those folks as well. So you defended your dissertation right before I started and a year before Carlton started, I think. I think that sounds about right. I finished in 2014, but I stuck around for a while. I kind of, I've had the the pleasure or I don't know, sometimes the, the challenge of working in a lot of different areas. So after I finished at Wyoming, I was there for a few more years working as a geographic information specialist for the State Historic Preservation Office. And then I, I bounced back east for a little while because my partner was working back here. And then I ended up taking the job as the Deputy State Historic Preservation Officer for about a year before ending up at Salve Regina. So I've gotten to kind of run around a little bit. Yes. Yes, you have. That is that is for sure. And I think, yeah, Connor, you started in 2016. I, no, 2014. I started in 2016. And I remember uh, meeting you, Dr. Rockwell, I think at pre-semester dinner at Jim or Hearn's house or something like that. But it was definitely, I know um, we've talked about this with with several others, but you were at least when I was at my master's program, you were one of the leading role models for graduate students to kind of not only impress, but like learn a lot from. So like very grateful for your tutelage at times trying to get through my master's degree. So yeah, thank you for that. And we're super happy to have you on tonight. Well, I'm happy to be here. I, I'm glad it's a, uh, a model and not a cautionary tale. I try. Uh, <laughs> you guys made it easy. Well, I'm glad to hear that. So well, you're here on A Life in Ruins, so I guess we better get started. <laughs> what were your first experiences in anthropology growing up? So, like, were you a dinosaur kid, a history kid, or, or a nature nerd? Um, what was that initial muse into anthro? So, I feel like if I go the farthest back, I was kind of a nature nerd. I started, you know, I spent most of my time outside as a kid. My parents had that policy of, like, you know, I'm kicking you out of the house. Come back when the sun goes down. I don't want to see you which is ultimately, I think, probably a good thing. You know, they sent me to Science Center camp as a kid to just be like, go outside and leave us alone. <laughs> but they also were really encouraging of me to kind of explore things around history. So I had a really brief period of time where I wanted to be a marine biologist. And then I watched Jaws and didn't want to be a marine biologist because the ocean is terrifying. And I also realized that job is not actually just scuba diving. There's actual science that seemed kind of hard and scary at the time. And then really quickly, about eight years old, I decided I wanted to be an archaeologist. You know, we had watched, you know, Indiana Jones. Uh, we liked history in my house. You know, both my brothers were history majors in college. My dad was that dad who always had like a, some sort of history book on his bedside stand at night. Uh, so I kind of switched gears at about eight years old. 
And then by the time I was 15, I was still saying I wanted to do this. And my parents were rightfully concerned because they were like, I don't think, you know, she's going into high school. She's getting older. She still thinks she wants to do this job that doesn't really seem like it's a real job. It seems like a job that like, you know, it's a movie job. It's not a real people job. So they started trying to search around to find a way I could go do some archaeology and see what it really was. And uh, my older brother actually found a program in the state of New Hampshire called the State Conservation Rescue Archaeology Program. It's run by the SHPO office called the Division of Historic Resources. It's a volunteer program to train people in archaeology. So they wrote the state archaeologist, uh, Dr. Richard Bovair, who is one of my long-term mentors, about having me go out with him. Uh, normally, he had only people over the age of 16, but uh, I was a hardcore nerd. So I wrote a letter when I was about 15 and a half. I was like, can I please, please go? I'm really responsible. And they let me. And so my parents dropped me off for a two-week field project, left me in the Northwoods of New Hampshire, and picked me up two weeks later. And my mother was convinced. She was like, I thought I was going to pick you up and you were going to be like, I'm stinky and dirty and my nails are gross and I want to go home. Instead, they picked me up and I was hooked. I was like, this is it. This is what I'm doing for the rest of my life. And I worked with Dr. Bovair all the way up until, gosh, probably I'd still work with him today. He comes out now and works on my projects, which is kind of a fun switch of roles. But I worked for him as a volunteer until I was... 21. And then I started supervising projects for him for four years, I believe. And then I started running my own projects. So it was kind of a, you know, serendipity. I'm one of those few kids, I think, that knew what they wanted to do from the time they were really little and still love it. You know, we've asked this question probably 86 times because this is the 86th episode. But I think that it's it's really interesting to hear there's only a couple or like a handful of people who in high school get to get that experience of going out and actually doing field work and really getting not addicted, but getting excited about archaeology during those times. So it's cool to hear that they have a program like that to allow even younger, 16 or younger folks to, to do that. Yeah, it was a really powerful experience for me. You know, I don't think I would have gone on the same path if I hadn't gotten to do that so young. This is my my 20th field season will be this coming year, which is kind of crazy because I'm not that old. Absolutely. So you grew up in New England. What made you want to pursue an anthro degree in Wisconsin, right? <laughs> that's WI is Wisconsin. I know my state abbreviations. You had it. Right yeah, off. that's okay. right. So it was kind of a funny trip for me because so I, I knew I wanted to do archaeology, you know, I was talking with my guidance counselor, trying to find some universities that I could go to and was struggling a little bit because there were some that I was like, I know I want to do archaeology specifically. So we were trying to find anthropology programs that were going to do what I wanted to do. And Beloit College, where I ended up going, kept kind of coming up. But I was really resistant to it because my oldest brother went to Beloit, history major. And I was like, I'm not going to go to the same college my brother went to. That's lame. He was there seven years before me. And I was just like, ah, I don't like that. I didn't want to do it and didn't want to do it. But I met with a recruiter from Beloit because Beloit has a really active sort of recruiting program cross country. And he started telling me about all these great opportunities. For one, you know, they have tons of active field projects that they run through the university. The university itself is actually on an archaeological site. 
it's surrounded by mounds. So it's kind of an amazing place to go. They also have a, a really great museum. The Logan Museum of Anthropology has uh, actually is one of the best collections of South American pottery in the nation. But you also get to work in the museum. Even as a freshman, they, they let you go in and you can help with collections and help with collection management and design. And that was all stuff I wanted to be able to do. So, you know, I applied to six schools, got into Beloit and, you know, debated very briefly on going to the University of New Hampshire, stay a little closer to home. But ultimately, you know, Beloit went out and it was it was the right choice for me. It gave me kind of the training that I wanted, that broad kind of four field training that's so important and gave me a lot of hands on experience that is still useful. So what what year did you first start getting that hands on experience? Was this like from year one on? Yeah. Yeah. When I got to Beloit, they, they start you right off kind of getting to do work as much as you want to. It's a really, it's a small school. There's like 1200 students. So it's really, really little. Anthropology is one of their largest majors and they, they bring you right in. If you say, I want to do this, I want to be hands-on. I want to work with collections. I went on my field school through the university there my sophomore year and I went to Chile uh, we worked in the Atacama Desert of northern Chile in a very tiny town called Pisagua. Pisagua is so remote that it was actually used as a political prison by uh, Pinochet. But it's it, it's an incredible place for preservation. We are working on Chinchoro period sites, so pre-Incan civilizations, finding mummies with, you know, fabric and woven mats and all this sort of incredible, very Nova special kind of archaeology stuff. So I got to do that. That really kind of solidified why I was there in the first place. And they were really into kind of professionalizing you as a young student. So when I got back from that field project, I did a, you know, student symposium on it and led a talk on, on my research down there. And that that kind of thing, kind of setting you up to do those professional talks down the road. I really liked that. And I got a charge at it. Excellent. So what made you or what led you to pursue graduate school? Was it from this, like getting a real hands-on experience in undergraduate and that getting that charge motivated you to continue down this path? Yeah. You know, in some ways it was. I also, you know, I, I was talking with a lot of people about where, where do I want to go with this? What's, what's the career? Because, you know, deep down, I am a, I'm a fairly practical person. Eating and paying rent are important to me. So I started asking some of my advisors, you know, what's the next step for me to have this as a job? Um, and they said, you know, if you want to be on projects, you want to run your own projects, you really need to go get a master's degree. I was also finishing undergraduate in 2008 when the economy was not awesome. So jobs were pretty, it was a rough scene out there. So graduate school looked pretty good as a you know secure way to kind of be semi-employed is what I would call graduate school, but also get that that next step that I needed in order to kind of be prepared successfully. Uh, I hadn't initially planned on going beyond that. I sort of knew the master's degree was really what you needed to be, you know, SOI standard and to be brought on to projects at, at a higher pay level. So I picked that uh, and picked the University of Tulsa Honestly, in not maybe the most informed way when I was applying to my master's programs, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to study New England archaeology, and I wanted to go somewhere that would let me do that. 
but I couldn't go to New England to do it. So you went to Oklahoma. Yeah. So I went to the University of Tulsa in Oklahoma, mostly because I I talked to people there. They were willing to train me in a skill set, which is something I wanted. I wanted kind of a more training and kind of that that hands on approaches. People who were doing science. And that was what attracted me to there. But I had applied to a lot of different programs. And that was the one that kind of fit the best. They had really good support for their master's students, which was also important to me because I didn't want to go into more academic debt. And they seemed like they really wanted me. Uh, And I'm glad I went. I worked with uh, Dr. George O'Dell down there, the late George O'Dell, unfortunately. But he trained me in microware analysis which was a really useful skill set for someone who's interested in New England archaeology because New England, we have rocks, but we don't have much else. So you really have to extract every piece of information you can. And microware lets you do that. So microware or useware analysis is when you examine the edges of stone tools and from the patterns of the way they break and the way polish develops and things that are called striations that are kind of like little lines in them, you can determine what the tools were used for, which is pretty helpful on sites that are just little pieces of rock. Absolutely. And then you went to Wyoming, good old UW, also working on New England archaeology, but getting further from New England and you go to Wyoming. So what led you to Wyoming? Was it specifically for Dr. Wagaspak? So Wyoming was another one where I ended up applying to a bunch of different programs. And again, I knew I wanted to do New England archaeology. And to do that, I knew I needed to go somewhere that was going to offer me some research freedom. Because there are some programs you go under the PhD, you work under a particular professor, they hand you a project and say, this is what your dissertation's on. And I didn't want that. I wanted to design my own project. And I wanted to study what I wanted to study. So I needed somewhere that was going to let me do that. I also knew I wanted to do paleo Indian. I kind of caught the paleo bug really early. I worked my first paleo site at 16, loved it, was totally hooked, thought this paleo thing was incredible and what I really wanted to study. So when I was selecting programs, I wanted to go somewhere that was going to push me theoretically in the world of studying paleo, people who are really going to help me hone my ideas. You know, I had a skill set. I could do lithic analysis. I could do microware. uh, I could do statistics. I needed people who were going to teach me how to think about paleo. And in, in my opinion, there are a few places better for that than the University of Wyoming, especially to work with someone like Dr. Wagaspak, Dr. Surabell, and Dr. Kelly. You know, that, that was my, that was my dream team. Um, That was my core dissertation committee. And I learned so much about how to think about people in the past from the three of them. Were you the last Dr. Wagaspak student? I was actually the first Dr. Wagaspak PhD student. Ah. I was her first. She was my chair and I was the first student that she was a chair for. So she was on lots of committees before me, but I was her, the first person she chaired for. I believe her last student was actually Dr. Malloy. Oh, that makes sense. Malloy finished uh, just two years after me. Fair enough. Excellent. I got you. I think 
Yeah, we should talk about the intersection between those three minds in the beginning of the next segment because it's interesting how they all approach things from different angles. So, yeah, I think we'll we'll start off there and then go into some of your PhD research. This is episode 86 of the Life in Ruins podcast, and we will be right back. Welcome back to episode 86 of a Life in Ruins podcast. We are here with Dr. Heather Rockwell, and we ended the last segment talking about... Uh, her moving to Wyoming and getting a committee full of folks who would challenge her theoretically and, and help her inform how she approaches kind of the archaeological record. So could you could you speak to how um, kind of your committee members helped work with you on your dissertation and, and lead your research? Yeah, absolutely. So I talked about my, my, my dream team. So I had Bob, Todd, and Nicole, and they're all really different people. And they all ask you to read really different stuff. So, and I used to kind of, I would spend a lot of time talking with each of them. So I used to just go into their offices and sit down and do a lot of talking about, here are the things I'm thinking about right now. What am I not reading? What am I not engaging with that I need to be engaging with? And it was always really funny because I just get such different stuff, even though I'd go to them with the same problems that I was exploring of being like, you know, I'm trying to connect, you know, activities to mobility. How do I attach, you know, because I've got, I'm doing this microware analysis and I'm seeing sort of what activities are occurring within a site. How do I take this and look at it on a regional scale and understand how does this affect people moving about a landscape in, in a way that's real, in a way that's not, you know, one of the big criticisms of microware analysis, and I think this is fair, is it tends to be kind of anecdotal. It, it tends to be being like, we have these pretty points and they got used for this. And that's all they say. And it doesn't get put in a broader context of what does that mean and why does it matter for human behavior? And that's the kind of questions I wanted to ask. So Bob would always kind of He'd give me some really interesting stuff with like, occasionally it would be ethnographic things or he would be like, you, you need to go read, you know, this, eth- go read some, some John Yellen or, you know, go to, go read some, some new mute foragers. And then other times it would be, you know, these technology things where he'd be like, go, go look at, you know, he's like, go read it. Go look at three sides of a biface. Three sides of a biface is wrong. And usually it wasn't that he'd usually, Bob is actually secretly very humble. And he would always recommend, he'd be like, go read Mary Pras Eunice's work on, you know, lithics and her, her study where she did the, the cutting genes. Go, go read that. And Todd would give me a lot of, kind of I always felt Todd is in the high nerdery where he would give me a lot of like stats papers, like papers that are really doing like, hardcore quantitative stuff or programming stuff. And, you know, he wanted me to go explore some of that literature and really dive deep into kind of some of the more colonization literature that's high techie techie. And then Nicole was always so interesting to talk to because she would just give me these resources that I hadn't ever really thought to engage with. One that her and I used to bond over was uh, the work of Wendell Oswald. Have you heard of Oswald before? Oswald did these really interesting kind of ethnographic collections, but he took a really material culture approach to them. So he would, he would take, look at technologies 
from a culture and then break them down to these things he called techno units and look at sort of how many pieces go into a single artifact. So if we're looking at a harpoon, how many pieces of technology go into that one overall tool and kind of what different kinds of material culture are there and and thinking about that for what does that mean for our sites because when you you know when we see archaeological sites in new england we just have lithic materials we just have stone tools because the geochemistry there is terrible so we don't get a lot of preservation we don't get a lot of faunal we get like almost no plant remains it's we get very few even features which can be really hard to deal with. So how do we get to all of the soft material? Because when we look at any culture across the world, we look at their technology, most of it is perishable. So if we're only seeing the rocks, we're seeing like 5% maybe. So how do we get back to that stuff? And my answer was microware. Micro is how we get back to that stuff. Because we can see, I can't tell you exactly what they made, but I can tell you what they were working. And that really matters. Um, so she used to kind of get me to, to think about my problems and my research from this really different angle than I ever thought I would approach them from. That's awesome. I have never taken a lithics class. I've managed to miss both times when Bob did his and then Doug did his. So no lithics for me. I just kind of rely on, yeah, that's a, that's a point. Those sure are rocks right there. (laughs) Look at those. Excellent. So, yeah, that's during my time at Wyoming. I only had Dr. Waggis pack for like a semester before she moved on to to New Mexico. So I unfortunately didn't get to meet her. But I've always heard really good things about Dr. Waggis pack's research. And I did watch her Wyoming public radio or she did that thing about the overpasses for antelope. Yeah. And yes, I saw that. It was great. I was like, I recognize that person. That's all I can contribute to this conversation. I am so out of my environment. (laughs) I really liked her way of approaching problems. So, you know, a lot of her work, I I was sort of really aspirational because it just is, uh, it was so impeccably researched and pulled from so many different sources that I wouldn't have thought to engage with. I always felt like she was a master class in building a really incredible library of, of resources. Cause you could just go through it. It was just all of these materials that I, you know, I never would have thought to, to look into, to get some answers. I'm really sort of like classic old, you know, firsthand accounts of cultures that, you know, I think a lot of times we sort of discount because a lot of them are pretty bad, but <laughs> there's some gems in there if you if you're willing to dig. And she really knew how to like dig deep into literature and just get some incredible results from it. Yeah, I felt like I was really blessed to just have Nicole as a teacher, have all of them teach a class for me and and learn from them because, like you said, they approach it from such different angles, and you'll get you're trying to answer the same question, but you'll get. So many different, like, you should go this direction, you should go this direction. You're, you know, it can be hard at times. Yeah. When you talk to the three of them, you bring them a question, you get three different answers, (laughs) (laughs) which it's always is good because you get to kind of decide which aspects of each of those answers you really like. And, uh, you know, I always really liked working with the three of them because it's not like I, I didn't always agree with them on, you know, theoretical stuff, you know 
big debates in archaeology, Clovis versus pre-Clovis, adoption of agriculture. You know, sometimes we'd end up on different sides of those debates. But I always liked that they really respected their students enough to they'd sit down and debate it with you and stuff. And they wouldn't try to just shut you down that you weren't you know, on their level yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I had some just great conversations with the three of them. I took New World Colonization Theory with Nicole. My my, I think it was my first semester at Wyoming, and it was just spectacular. That's very cool. So you ended up writing your dissertation. Obviously, you wrote your. I think you wrote your master's thesis on this as well on the Paleo Indian period in the Northeast. What what does that look like, and what does one study? Yeah, yeah, and I guess like how is Paleo Indian archaeology different in method than it is like in the Greater Rocky Mountain Great Plains area? Well, as I've alluded to, we've uh, we've got some challenges. Preservation is an issue for us. Uh, We've just got really bad geochemistry throughout most of the region, particularly where I work. I work mostly within northern New England. The soils are incredibly acidic, so almost no bone, very few hards. We do get them. We're pretty lucky. My site I worked on for my master's thesis, the Potter site in northern New Hampshire, we were actually getting some of the rocks were desilicifying. And so we have some that we only exist in photographs because when you tried to collect them, they turned into powder. Is that what desolidifying means? Desilicification. So it's, uh, it's when the silica starts to leach out of the rock. Yeah, it is not good. It makes your job very, very hard. So you guys are in like hardcore mode up there in New England with Paleo Indian. Like you're dialing up the difficulty rating. Yeah. You know, it's actually... Dr. Kelly, in my dissertation defense, you know, I was talking about all these challenges we have. And he was like, so the geochemistry is terrible and there aren't that many people working there. So you don't have that many sites and they're really hard to find because there's trees everywhere and there's lots of private land. So why bother? And and this is in my dissertation defense. And I remember waiting like a full five beats before trying to collect an answer for why we're doing this to ourselves. And the, you know, I, at the time, you know, it's your dissertation defense. So my panic levels were at about a 15 And so what I ended up coming up with was, you know, just because something's hard doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. And and that's kind of the approach you have to take in in New England is you have to be really dedicated to trying to find those answers. I do try to pitch it to people as we've got some good stuff going for us. For one thing, I think it's a really interesting area of paleo. For one thing, we're late. Uh, New England paleo is really late to the party. We are solidly later than the rest of of North America, really, as far as we don't have any Clovis occupations in New England. Our earliest occupations are Kings Road Whipple points. They're considered a Clovis variant, but not true Clovis. So we come in afterwards, but I say this is an advantage because the thing that people in New England don't have to deal with is pre-Clovis. We know there is no pre-Clovis in New England. There can't be. Because it's deglaciated fairly late. And even after it's deglaciated, 
there's some evidence to suggest that New England may have been really hard to get to. So as the, the ice sheet is sort of retreating into Canada, all that water has to go somewhere. And there's some studies that are suggesting that water is going straight down the Hudson River Valley. And it may have been basically making New England an island that you couldn't get to. Which means we have a temporal control. We know there's no pre-Clovis there. So I don't have to worry about sussing out that mess. I can look at sort of a clear window on what colonization should look like. So if I want to understand a colonization process and how people do it, I don't have to deal with the muddiness that the rest of the country does because I know when people got to New England. So I actually get to look at what's first. And doesn't it also take time for vegetation to reestablish itself behind like retreating glaciers? Like it's not just like, oh, the glaciers are gone. Boom. 30 foot tall pine trees. It's like it takes some time for life to come back from from that under ice Hell. Exactly. Yeah, it's going to take a hot minute for the land to recover. We we have Pleistocene fauna here. This is the other thing that's interesting. Is So we have remains of mastodons and mammoths in New England. We have zero evidence of them being hunted by people here. Man, I really wish David was here for that because this is an <laughs> ongoing debate between us. We have Aside. no evidence yet. Now, we know they overlapped. So a recent paper by uh, my colleague, Dr. Kitchell, they redated a mammoth found in Vermont. And the dates from that seem to suggest it is at the time when people are in New England. So we know they're here, but we see no evidence of them being hunted. What we do see them hunting, which is really different from the rest of the country, is caribou. So New England had large herds of caribou. Now, how those caribou behaved is up for some debate. What we assume is that they behave like migratory bands of caribou. So the ones they group up in the fall, massive numbers, maybe thousands of animals that would kind of move north. And then in the spring, they'd group up again and they'd move south and have kind of more dispersed pattern in the winter and the summer. And we know people are hunting caribou. Sites like the Vale site in Maine, there are some caribou remains there. The Tenant Swamp site in Keene, New Hampshire, has a uh, remains of a, a baby caribou at that site. So we know that's a spring occupation. So we know they're kind of using these caribou herds to their advantage, which is a little different because following a, a migratory species like caribou requires some pretty different hunting strategies than ambushing mammoths. So we're seeing a really different pattern of behavior here. And what's interesting, so what my dissertation research focused on is, okay, so New England has this better better control over time. So how can we use that to our advantage? And I said, well, let's see if we know what the earliest sites are in New England. So let's look at the behavior we see at those earliest sites and compare it to sites that come later. Because then if they're really different, then we should be able to say, hey, this is what colonizing behavior looks like. This is how they behave. And that did not work at all. My research basically found there was almost no difference in behavior between kind of early and middle Paleo-Indian sites. And my explanation for that is I think by the time we can actually see people on the landscape, they've already been settled in that environment for a very long time. 
I think the colonization process is essentially pretty invisible because people are smart and they get into a landscape and they instantly spread out in way faster than the blink of a radiocarbon eye. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think you mentioned when you give you give a talk at Wyoming. There's a it's a lag, right? So like the expression of this occurs exactly. Later. Yeah, yeah. So we see people here, and especially you know with our dates in New England, because I said bad geochemistry, not a lot of features, and some of our classic kind of early Paleo-Indian sites, you know, we'll have dates on them that it's like plus or minus two hundred, which is not great because that's a long time. <laughs> And this, you know, this means I think by the time we're, we're seeing them here, we're, we're seeing people who really know what they're doing. You know, the, the sites that I saw that are kind of early paleo suggest people that are really mapped onto resources in the region. You know, our earliest site, one of our earliest ones, the Whipple site, which is also located in New Hampshire, uh, dates to the early paleo Indian period. They have material at that site that comes from where my current project is located in far northern Maine, which means the earliest site we have in the region, they've already accessed material from a site hundreds of miles to the north. So they've gone there and back again. Wow. And we never saw it. Well, that makes sense because you look at like a, a, a distribution curve and the earliest sites are going to be like in the 98th, 99th percentile and extreme early edge. And those are just, like Connor said, going to be like darn near invisible. Like you'll never find the earliest site. Exactly. And if in a in a environment such as New England, where you're already talking about taphonomic bias and environmental bias, where it's already difficult enough to find a paleo Indian site, like you're that difficulty increases exponentially. Exactly. And we should anticipate we'll never find the earliest sites, but we should find a cluster of like early sites. And I think we've got that cluster of early sites, but we just don't see a behavior that says, you know, every now and then I I always get frustrated with articles that are like, we're seeing colonization in this site. And I'm like, where are you? Are you seeing people that know what they're doing already? Because in theory, people who are colonizers, people who are really in a landscape that's totally new, they shouldn't have it all figured out. They should mess up a lot. They should maybe use crummy lithic resources or maybe camp in areas that kind of stink. And we don't see that at all. They ignore material from lithic resources that are easy to find, super big. And perfectly serviceable material just gets ignored. They don't use it at all. And then they go find stupid, hard to find stuff in northern Maine. Absolutely. And that is an apt description with Thanksgiving coming up, even though uh, this episode doesn't come out till December 13th, talking about all the problems of early colonizers. So hashtag Jamestown. We'll be right back with episode 86 of Life Roots podcast. We'll be we'll return with Dr. Heather Rockwell. And welcome back to episode 86. We're going to do a pretty hard transition here. There's no way to really segue. But as we were reviewing Dr. Rockwell's CV in preparation for this episode, there was a very interesting in press or in review. That's what I should have reviewed. Not the episode I'm about to mention, but where is this publication? It's still to be submitted. It's in progress. It's in prep. That's the word I'm looking for. And so Dr. Rockwell is co-authoring an article with Dr. Maddie Mackey, who appeared on episode 71 of Mammoths and Handsprays about a very important and topical, I don't want to say topic, 
thing. It's definitely a thing. It's definitely a thing. Basically, a, a very important. <laughs> God, why a crisis? New, is crisis the right word? I think it's a crisis. Crisis is the right word. Yeah, crisis that's going on. And so we really wanted Dr. Rockwell to kind of introduce us to to this article. And when it's published, we will have Dr. Rockwell and Dr. Mackey back on so we can do a deep dive into this like we've done with topics in the past. So Dr. Rockwell, if you could please introduce us to the concept of this work in progress. Sure. So everybody needed a COVID project. And shortly before uh, the lockdown happened, this paper came out by Speakman et al. talking about job hiring trends in anthropology. Anybody who's trying to get a job who has a PhD in anthropology right now probably knows what I'm talking about because it's not good out there. The job market is a really scary place for someone with a PhD in anthropology. And I am speaking specifically for people with PhDs Masters and undergraduate degrees are a very different world. But people who made the grave misfortune of going on and getting a PhD in hello. anthropology. <laughs> hello. <laughs> Sorry, Carlton. <laughs> in the uh, the aughts, it's, uh, it's really tough. And we were talking about this paper that it, it basically suggests that, you know, they did this, this big study and they found that there's a very small number of programs that basically hold the majority of the market share of jobs in an anthropology are held from by people from just a very small number of programs. And Dr. Mackey and I were both concerned by this. I was personally concerned by this because at that point, I had been sitting out on the job market for about four years, which is about the time you start to question what you're doing. In my own job search, I applied for 113 academic positions, Uh, nailed it on the 114th, which is a lot. I graduated in 2010. I got offered this job. Excuse me. I graduated in 2014. I started in 2010. Thank goodness. I graduated in 2014. I got offered this position in 2019, technically. So in December of 2019, I got offered the job I currently have at Salve Regina. But I was looking at staying within state government, going a very, very different route than kind of the classic academic track. And so our our COVID project, we said, can we explore this phenomenon further? What are some of the things, some of the things we know are driving it are one, there are fewer academic positions than there used to be, especially within anthropology. I would say across many disciplines are seeing this in liberal arts. They're really cutting lines, going to far more adjuncts, which has its own problems and can be pretty exploitative. But we're also producing a lot more PhDs than we used to, far more than we should. And there are a lot more programs than there used to be. It seems like every time you turn around, a university is trying to have another PhD program. And so our work, we wanted to kind of explore, one, is it really the case that if you basically need to go to a small number of very well-established PhD programs in order to be successful on the job market, or is there something else driving this trend? And so that's kind of what we decided to explore is look at kind of graduation rates across the nation and see where are people getting their PhDs and where do they end up? And also, how long do they sit on the market for? Like I said, I sat on the market for basically five years before I landed an academic job. 
Now, I was employed in that time, but in a variety of statuses. I worked for the National Park Service. I worked for the SHPO as a contract employee and then as the deputy SHPO. I was also briefly a, uh, a secretary in an elementary school. Because again, eating and paying rent are really good things. Whereas Maddie, who is my dear friend, had great success in the job market. She basically kind of nailed it in her first year out. And we said kind of, you know, what, what's kind of driving some of these trends that we see? When do people get picked up? And maybe also, when should you give up? Academia can be kind of insidious in that we all really want the dream. You know, we all want to go out and we want to be that professor. That's why we got a PhD in the first place is because you want to go out and do research. That's why most people stick in the discipline. Because for archaeology, especially, you don't really need it to do almost anything else. You can get up pretty high in the National Park Service or in the federal system or at a CRM firm with a master's degree. You don't need to have a PhD. So if you're getting the PhD, it's because you want a university job. So it sucks people in. And they get in this trap and they feel like they can't go for anything else. They have to get that academic job or it wasn't worth it. And it's a long time. I finished my PhD in four years. That's considered pretty fast. Many people stay in for closer to eight years. That's a lot of wasted time if you don't end up in the job you want. And so that's kind of the area we've decided to sort of explore in this upcoming work. And I think you also, as you get a PhD, you work yourself out of jobs. You like, you know, overqualify yourself for certain positions in CRM or anything like that. And I know my company in general, not that they don't, they won't hire a PhD student, but they generally don't hire folks for those positions because they're looking, like you said, for academic jobs and things like that. So you, yeah, you can wiggle yourself out of jobs by doing the PhD as well. Oh, absolutely. So my first job with the National Park Service, I had just finished the PhD, was working as a contractor with the SHPO office and was applying to everything under the sun, tons of academic jobs, but I was also applying pretty heavily within the federal service. But the issue was I had never worked in the federal service before. I had no previous time in that system. So I ended up applying for a lot of jobs way below you know, when you have a PhD, they put your recommended grade somewhere up by like a GS-11. And my first job in the federal system was at a GS-7, way below that. And part of that was because I had no previous experience in that area. So I was sort of overqualified on the education front, but underqualified in federal service. And so it puts you in a spot where you, you can't really win. And, and this can be true of contract firms as well. You know, unless you're able to pitch it really well that you've, you know, you've done some of the shovel bum life and you, you are okay, okay with going back to that, it can be a tough sell to hire a PhD. Because also, you just put in a lot of time and probably a lot of money on an education and you, you might like to get paid <laughs> fairly well, which doesn't always come when you're still, frankly, pretty green for some of those jobs. Yeah, I had a, uh, a PI in my first CRM gig. He had a, he just removed his PhD from his CV and applied for the CRM job and he was able to get one. And he worked CRM didn't, and just I guess one day he slipped about his dissertation topic 
And then they found out he had a PhD and then they're like, well, he's not on the market. He's been working with us for such a long time. Let's just promote him to a PI. So it went from like basic shovel bomb, kind of proved that he was in it to win it and then let it slip. He had a PhD and then boom, all of a sudden he's a, he's a PI. So it was like, I guess it kind of worked out for him, but it was this weird, this was like fresh out of undergrad for me, like in between Radford and Wyoming when I was doing this. And like, I had never heard how bad the PhD job market was before. And now I'm here and they're like, yeah, the market sucks. I had to lie about my education just to get a job and not like make yourself look better. Well, it's, it wouldn't, and that's, that's not fair. I wouldn't say if you took your PhD off, you'd look worse, but like, as Connor said, a big reason with CRM companies, if you have a PhD, they assume you're on the job market for a professor job. Why are they going to hire you as a CRM company? If, if they're, why are they going to put all this time and energy into training you for their CRM company if you're just going to go? Yeah, absolutely. And it, you know, I think some of that is, you know, a, a failure of, of academic programs to also kind of one pitch the reality of what you're going to see out there. You know, I, when, I was applying to PhD programs. I I didn't have that conversation with anyone. You know, I got told like, oh, it's it's challenging and competitive, but I didn't get told that things like 70% of people who get a PhD are not going to end up with a job in academia. And those are what the numbers are suggesting is that most people will not end up in a job in the academy. Which means we maybe need to rethink the bill of goods we're selling people. You know, if you want to go get a PhD, think about what you want to do afterwards and have some backup plans. You know, having a, okay, I'm going to apply for PhD programs for X amount of time, but I'm also going to apply for these jobs over here because, you know, we do, we have a decent set of skills. Surveying companies get really excited about the fact that we know how to run a total data station. You know, sell yourself for other things. You know, one thing anthropologists can do is talk to people. So usually we can sell ourselves at least a little bit. And we, I think, need to really take a good look at what we're telling people when they're coming through and how many students we're taking on. Way too many PhD students are going into programs and there's just not jobs out there for them. And I mean, some of this is also related to the fact that I I always joke about how anthropologists, they don't retire. They die on the bench like they're in the Supreme Court. They die on the keyboard. They do. They never leave. You know, I always laugh. You go into these programs and there's people in there and they're like, I'm 80 years old. It's like, are you emeritus? No. (laughs) Just hanging out. And I get it. There's something to be said for the fact that they love their jobs. But there's some really hungry people in their mid-30s who would really love it if you retired. I think I might have a solution. Archaeology PhD Squid Games. The prize <laughs> is a tenure-track position, and we throw 300 archaeologists with PhDs into a room with sharpened trowels and just do a number of tasks. And at the end, someone gets a tenure-track where the rest are dead. So that way, we, we're opening jobs and also eliminating the inflation in the market. The scary thing is, It's kind of already like that, especially if you start looking at some of these applications. There's a a joke thing going around right now that's they're going to send a plaque to the worst job application this year because I think they've kind of gotten wise to a lot of these applications. They can ask for whatever they want. And there's so many desperate people that they'll get it. So 
places ask for CV, cover letter, research statement, teaching statement, diversity statement, three sample syllabi and letters up front. And these take hours to prepare, especially if you're doing them right, because you do have to tailor them. Anyone who says you can send the same letter to every school you apply to is not going to get a job. You have to tailor every single one. And when you have to do an eight-part application, you are wasting tons of time, but the schools know they'll get it. Gosh, I remember there was one job listing from an institution, which will remain nameless, from several years back that was advertising a, it was a permanent job at a, a community college system, but you would teach on five different campuses. So you would have to drive between these different campuses and the pay was $45,000 a year. I mean, that's a, you literally go out and get a job doing almost anything else and do better than that and do a heck of a lot less of driving around because there's no guarantee that the five classes you would be teaching a semester wouldn't be on all five campuses. But that's the kind of thing that places can ask for. And it's it's taking advantage of some really desperate people. What is the hope? What's the silver lining to this article that you and Dr. Mackey are working on? Like what what's the call to action? So the call to action is some of it is I think we need to one. I, I think we're starting this really early on. So with my own students, we got to do professional development training like from the get go. Every single one of my students who graduates with me is going to walk out of there with a CV, knowing how to apply for jobs and with a clear view of what this market is like. I think we have to have those conversations with students early. So they really think about what their options are like out there and what all of this means. You know, what does it mean when you have student loans and you are in graduate school for 10 years? You know, what does that do to the interest on them? What will your student loans look like when you come out the other side and you haven't been paying them? It's, you know, I think having some of those really smart conversations early on with students is going to be key. But also thinking about what are the kinds of jobs that archaeologists can do? Because we've got some skills. Like archaeologists are good at kind of a wide variety of skills, but We've hammered into people getting PhDs for so long. There's only one path forward. And that's just not the case. You know, in my own area where I'm living in Newport, Rhode Island, there's a huge number of preservation organizations that would love to hire people who are archaeologists because we have broad knowledge. So I think also just there's an opportunity to be more creative and to pursue different paths. But I think the key is we need to tell people that those paths are okay and not sort of put academic jobs up on a pedestal, that these are the only path forward. Yeah. And we, we hope that this program and A Life in Ruins in general can can give credence to that, that we give that, that people take different paths in archaeology and we want to highlight that as part of this program. So yeah. Like our unfunded and unpaid podcast that we do on our free time. Also, I'm going to recommend The Purge. As part of your Squid Games thing, it's part of it too, as well. So, yeah, that's the thing. Like, we've got, I, I always tell people, I'm like, archaeologists are some of the coolest people you'll meet. They have awesome skills and they would be really good in a ton of different positions. Like, archaeologists do anything. 
So we should just get more creative in the jobs we want to do, like podcasting. If all else fails, there's always corporate recruiting. So, right. Dr. Rockwell, <laughs> before we end the show, what are a couple sources? These could be books, articles, videos, blogs, whatever, that you would recommend for anyone interested in paleoengineering archaeology or the archaeology of New England? So, a couple of sources that if you're interested in paleoengineering archaeology that have really meant a lot to me. One, I have to shout out because it's from my dissertation chair, Nicole Wagesback, the Organization of Male and Female Labor and Foraging Societies, Implications for Early Paleoindian Archaeology. It's one of those papers that I've drawn a lot of inspiration from because I love kind of taking scientific approaches and then saying, what other things can we think about with this? And then a new book that's come out uh, very recently and is written by a dear friend of mine and a wonderful archaeologist working in New England, A Deep Presence, 13,000 Years of Native American History by Robert Goodby. It's, it's very much accessible. It's, it's meant for the general public. And Bob is just a, is a really great person who has been doing the work in an area that is really hard to work in. So this book was really needed. So I'm, I'm excited that it's out right now. Excellent. Would you say that Bob is doing good by the Paleo Indian record up in New England? He is doing good by the Paleo Indian record in New England. Okay. You'll have to see his name to understand that pun. Okay. So excellent. Where can our listeners find you on social media, Heather? So you can find me on Instagram at, at Salve University CHP and on Facebook at Salve Regina University Cultural Historic Preservation. Excellent. And for our listeners, you can find those handles in the episode description wherever you're listening to this podcast. Awesome. And because this show is the show it is, uh, we have to ask you. So if you were uh, given a chance again, would you still choose to live a life searching for New England Paleo-Indian archaeology, archaeological ruins? I would choose a life in ruins every day of the week. <laughs> Excellent. And with that, we just interviewed Dr. Heather Rockwell, Assistant Professor of Cultural and Historic Preservation in the Cultural, Environmental, and Global Studies Department at Salve Regina University. That is a mouthful, Heather. That is quite I the title. Know, and I actually am realizing <laughs> I may have to correct you on that. What happened? It's what did we do wrong? It's close enough. Our- I looked... Uh, okay. I'm sorry. I had, I like looked, I Googled the page, but anyways, you can find Heather on Instagram and Facebook at Solvay University CHP on Instagram and on Facebook, Solvay Regina University Cultural Historic Preservation Program. So you can find those in the show notes below. Rate the podcast. Yeah, do that. Buy our merch. We have stickers, please. Excellent. And with that, we are out. Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at a Life in Ruins podcast. And you can also email us at a Life in Ruins podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. Oh, this one's so bad. Oh, this one's so bad. Oh, get ready for it. What do New Englanders call a crate full of dentures? A mass of chew sets. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh. Oh, that hurt. Oh, oh it's bad. That, that felt like a punch in the heart. Oh, yeah. A mass of chew sets. Yeah. Mass of chew yeah. sets. Oh. Thank Woof. you, Connor. <laughs> oh, oh, oh.
This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.